Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com the michael reed show podcast tune in weekdays from nine on lmfm to contact us email now Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday morning, the 13th of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. We'll begin today with Sinn Féin's motion of no confidence in the government. It is a government that has presided over two years of utter and abject failure. Not only has this government failed to make improvements in the areas that really matter to people, but you have in fact managed to make a bad situation so much worse. This is especially true in housing, in healthcare, and in dealing with the cost of living crisis that has literally pushed households to the brink. You have no urgency, you have no vision, you have no capacity to grasp the severity of these problems in the lives of ordinary people. So by any fair judgment, Taoiseach, you are failing. Mary Lou MacDonald led the Sinn Féin charge against the coalition, but it was a motion of confidence in the government that TDs ultimately voted on. In this and in every area in the government, and in spite of unprecedented challenges because of the pandemic, we've worked to implement a programme which will, over a full mandate, deliver real and sustained progress for the Irish people. When we heard the loud and aggressive speeches of the opposition, that nothing has been done, that the people are being ignored, that everything is miserable, that we live in a failed state, it's not hard to understand what's going on. It's the same aggressive populist politics which we're seeing in much of the world at the moment. I'm proud of what my party and our partners in government have together helped our country to overcome in the past two years, the policies we've put in place for sustained long-term progress. We believe in politics which works for the long-term interests of our country, not one that looks for issues to exploit. The Taoiseach, Michal Martin, was supported in his criticism of Sinn Féin by Minister Michael McGrath. The promises being made by Sinn Féin amount to billions and billions of euro. Sinn Féin are building a level of expectation of what they can deliver in government that is utterly unrealistic and unrealisable. In their heart of hearts, they must know this, and it is a deeply cynical approach to politics. Some of those who will support Sinn Féin today have had not one, but two opportunities to enter government in recent years, but chose the safe and comfortable benches of opposition 
where it is easy to have all the answers and none of the responsibility. Minister Michael McGrath's staunch defence of uh, the government came in uh, the face of very strong criticism from Sinn Féin on three fronts. The cost of living, health and housing and homelessness. Homelessness has increased in the last two years by 19%. Child homelessness by a staggering 40% in the last 12 months. There are now 5,000 single adults in emergency accommodation funded by the Minister for Housing's Department. That is the highest level of single-person homelessness ever recorded in modern times. There are over 3,000 children tonight because of the policies of this government sleeping in emergency accommodation. Uh, And we are only days away from breaching the October 2019 peak of the highest level of officially recognised homelessness in the history of the state. Minister Simon Coveney had a very different perception to some of these problems than Owen O'Brien, the spokesperson on housing for Sinn Féin, who you just heard from there. We continue to increase our investments and our focus to improve life for many who feel under pressure because of housing. But despite Sinn Féin constantly opposing every new initiative that we take, Sinn Féin opposed the LDA building homes. Sinn Féin opposed the Help to Buy scheme. Sinn Féin opposed the Shared Equity scheme. Sinn Féin is against financial interventions to get apartments built. Sinn Féin on the ground in local authorities have opposed 6,000 homes on council land in Dublin because they say they're not being built in the way that Sinn Féin decides rather than democratic decisions on those councils. And the list goes on. Despite, despite all of that, despite all of that, Deputy, uh, because of these government's priorities, 30,000 homes have been commenced in the last year and close to 10,000 social homes will be delivered this year. We have much more to do, but unfortunately we'll have to do it in spite of those opposites. And the allegations went back and forth from side to side. Sinn Féin's criticism of uh, the government uh, was completely... Uh, engaging, but ministers lined up one after the other uh, to uh, give as good as they were getting. As Minister for Justice, I take my responsibility towards the security and safety of our state and indeed our people very seriously. But just weeks ago, once again, Sinn Féin failed to support the renewal of the Offences Against the State Acts and the Special Criminal Court. It was another reminder that Sinn Féin cannot be trusted to protect national security and the institutions of the state. And it told us that they are willing to ignore very clear security advice from Angarda Siakana and from the Garda Commissioner, whose unambiguous view, and I put this on the record of the House, is that the offences against the State Act and the Special Criminal Court are vital in the continued fight on terrorism and organised crime. But Sinn Féin ignores those views. They prefer to help their own. What other advice from the Garda Commissioner would they ignore if they were in office? What other security and intelligence briefings would they disregard? The truth is they cannot be trusted our people and our state. The Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, but back to the cost of living. The Ireland today under Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and the Greens is an Ireland where one in three are living in energy poverty. It's where an Ireland where one in three are struggling to make ends meet. Where too many struggling on low pay struggle to build a future and live in an Ireland where they feel that they have no future. The living standards of Irish households is below the European average. That is a fact. And under this government, workers and families face mounting energy bills, transport costs and food prices, with many, many of them at breaking point. 
struggling under a cost of living crisis, workers and families deserve a government that hears them, that listens to them and that's willing to respond for them. Workers and families deserve a government that is in touch with their concerns and that will take decisive action. But instead, they are faced with a government that refuses to take action, refuses to bring forward an emergency budget, and that their message to them is to sit tight, to buckle up, because they are on their own. But a message, a very different message is there for the vulture funds and the investment funds, because this is a government that is only all too quick to roll out the red carpet for those, for those that want to exploit the housing crisis to the detriment of renters and home buyers. This is a Cancornia, a government that has allowed the most vulnerable to wither on the vine and has only responded when they have been shamed into action. A Cancornia, this is a government that is out of touch, a government that is out of ideas, a government that is out of time. And Pierce Doherty may give you many reasons for not voting for the government and, in fact, reasons for voting for Sinn Féin. That's if you trust Sinn Féin. I have spoken to many of my constituents and businesses in my area and, and they're very concerned that Sinn Féin would get into power. They say they are full of promises and they're always throwing the towels into the palm when they don't get their own way. Their records peaceful and says in the north. Just look at the situation in housing, health, homelessness and the cost of living. And again, no assembly uh, elected. The government has assured me that they are fully aware of the impact of the rising prices on the household and Irish businesses. And I will be working very close with them over the next few months to make sure that they get the help they need. I have represented the people of Loud and East Mead for nearly 12 years now. I have always been open and transparent. Since I became an independent three years ago, and when I vote, I always take into consideration my constituency, and I'm not just here to push the buttons. I will do my best for them. Uh, it is important that we all work together like we did during the pandemic and, and put this wonderful country first. The last thing now we need is, a, is the government to collapse. A general election being called, and this would mean no budget on September 27th, a lengthy election like the last election. People need help, and people need help now. I will be voting in confidence of this government. That's local independent uh, TD Peter Fitzpatrick, who doesn't trust Sinn Féin, voted in uh, favour of uh, the government motion. Uh, another local TD, Aindus Padertobin, doesn't trust the government and he had many reasons for criticising the administration's performance uh, but he put our ladies' hospital in Navin on his list for that matter. And a constituent in my own constituency rang a doctor for a, a, a GP meeting and was told a date in September. And still, at the same time, we have the government closing down A&E and ICU capacities. Over 600 patients on trolleys in the middle of summer. University Hospital Limerick is like a war zone and senior management in the health service are in open revolt against the Minister for Health. He has paused the closure of Navin A&E and they are proceeding with it right now. And from Navin to Cavan and a different perspective from Minister Heather Humphreys. This evening, once again, Sinn Féin are playing politics and the Sinn Féin motion is an absolute waste of time and pure nonsense. But what do you expect from an opposition party who just two years ago ran to the hills at the very thought of going into government? When duty and responsibility called, Sinn Féin hid in the bunkers. And for a while, you thought you were Donald Trump. You were going round the country telling people you should be in power instead of sitting down and actually trying to form a government. And Heather Humphreys summed up her feelings this way. This Sinn Féin motion is the greatest load of codology 
that I've seen in a long time. But it was the Thánaiste, Leo Varadkar, who summed up the debate on behalf of the government. This motion of no confidence tabled by Sinn Féin is a deeply cynical and nakedly political one. It is pointless. The government has a clear working majority and that will be evident from the vote tonight. And I think actually Sinn Féin, often master tacticians, have made a tactical error here because you've allowed us to demonstrate tonight. You've allowed us to demonstrate tonight that we have a clear working majority, that we will be able to pass a budget and that this government can and will last full term. We will prove by the vote tonight that there is no prospect of a Sinn Féin-led government this year, next year, the year after, and maybe not even the year after that. This is a show motion. It's a publicity stunt. It was designed to get coverage and airtime for Sinn Féin politicians who have no real solutions to the problems that our country faces, just snappy sound bites that tested well with your expensive focus groups. Right, that's Leo Radker. Let's get uh, the analysis of Gavin Riley now. Gavin is political correspondent with Virgin Media News and a columnist with uh, the Mead Chronicle. Good morning to you, Gavin. Thanks morning, for joining us. Uh, there was uh, a lot of point scoring, I suppose, on both sides. Uh, would you declare a winner? Um, I don't know if I would, but I call it a score draw or a, or a no score draw because I think, in truth, I think you've given a pretty good taste of it with all the clips that you've just played there. There was an awful lot of heat and very little light coming from the debate last night. I mean, I suppose, look, if you have to look at the, the actual scoreboard at the end of it all, you have to declare a winner. The government survives with, with a pretty comfortable majority. If you're talking about 85 votes mm. to 66 and what abstention, that, that is a fairly comfortable uh, margin by which they're still in office this morning. You'd have to have changed the votes of 10 people based on those that were there in order to flip this. But actually, if you go a little bit further and you drill down to some of the absences, um, there was one Finnegale TD who's recently bereaved, uh, burying their, their parents today, so they weren't present last night. Bernard Dirk and the Finnegale TD uh, currently has COVID-19, so he was missing last night. He wasn't provided with a pair. Uh, and there was another government supporter who was paired with another absentee as well. So it could have been as many mm. as 88 votes out of 160, which, considering last week we were talking about the government now being in an official minority of 79, you, you would have been forgiven for thinking that things looked a little more ropey, but certainly at the end of it, if you can say that the government now has uh, the support really, in truth, of 88 TDs to stay in office, then there isn't really uh, much of a danger to its existence for the short term. So you have to say that the government at least comes out uh, on the face of it as a winner, even if the debate didn't really produce much of a, a winner or a loser last night. Okay, well, we go into the summer with a minority government uh, that has a, a working majority. At best, uh, that's what Sinn Féin could have hoped the public perception to be. But it, it seems now that we have a, a very strong working majority and a very stable government. Uh, was Leo Vracker right in saying that Sinn Féin made a tactical error? Uh, well, it depends on, on what you think the goal of Sinn Féin's uh, actions were. Now, if it was to, to try and underline this idea that the government was only now rocking by, that it was being patched together from vote to vote, then, then that has obviously failed. But it, that may not have been the ultimate purpose of the motion it may have been the, the primary one um, but it's been very notable for the last week that in the run up to this vote Sinn Féin were saying you know this is an opportunity now for the independent TDs to nail their colours to the mast and to tell us where they stand and it's probably those independent TDs who are maybe the secondary targets for all of this that if you are already looking with one eye to the next election as I'm sure a lot of TDs already are and if you're looking at uh, you know, an area like Louth, where you know, have an independent TD like Peter Fitzpatrick, who has decided that on balance, even though he is not a member of the government, he decided to back the government on the pretense of getting a good budget out of it in a couple of months' time. Um, if that budget does not meet with a lot of people's expectations or it isn't seen to do enough to try and put more money back in people's pockets, you could very probably very legitimately have Sinn Féin turning around at the next election and say, 
But what's the value of voting for an independent like Peter Fitzpatrick if all they're going to do is tow the government line, whether they're inside the tent or outside? So maybe that was the part of the, the purpose. And it is worth bearing in mind as well mm. that although the government's majority last night was quite strong, it was only the minority, the majority for now. And a lot of those TDs, I mean, even the likes of, of Michael Lowry and Peter Fitzpatrick saying it explicitly outright, they were only keeping the government in office because basically they thought that a budget was necessary and you couldn't run the risk of collapsing a government now, having an election in early August and, and taking a couple of months to patch a government together. Is it possible, though, that there were other reasons? Uh, it, it, what did this cost the government? Uh, did it cost uh, improved cardiology in Sligo, for example, which well, is what Mark McSherry is saying was the deal that he struck with government in order for his support? Yeah, which is fascinating because I've got a colleague who's going to another media off with the T-shirt this morning and I've actually asked him to put that question to him because I was at a, a media event with the T-shirt on Monday and I asked him, you know, was the government going to be doing side deals with independents to secure their vote? And the Taoiseach said, no, we don't do side deals with independents. We do listen to some of the concerns that we have. But we don't do sort of formal arrangements with them. And then turn around to 24 hours later and Mark McSherry says that he's got a commitment to cardiac services in Sligo, which would probably be news to some of the TDs from Waterford, who, as you know, would have been looking for commitments to cardiac services down there mm. for an awful long time and don't appear to have gotten anything. Um, and the, the future of cardiac services around the country is a matter which is currently under review. So if somebody had given Mark McSharry a commitment that Sligo was going to retain its services or that it was going to be a service centre for the North West, um, that would be pretty significant because you'd have the government basically preempting or ignoring the outcome of, mm. of a review which is still to be finalised in order to buy somebody off. But, but this brings me back to the point that I was going to make, which is that um, a lot of TDs said that they wanted to only keep the government in situ because a budget was absolutely necessary. That means that not necessarily they're going to vote for the budget, just that they believe there shouldn't be the risk of mm. an election that delays one. Okay. So, but what, so what happens when the election or when the, when the budget comes around in <laughs> yeah. September mm. and, and it's not the, the, the 15 or 20 euro on the pension that you might want where public spending isn't increasing by the same amount as inflation, so ultimately you're falling backwards in real terms. Uh, will all the same people who lined up to support the government last night, will they be quite as enthusiastic in a couple of months' time? Maybe not. Mm, yeah, well, the budget vote will probably be the real confidence vote or the time for it, uh, as you say, Gavin. Uh, and I suppose it, it wouldn't be unusual or unique for government uh, to do deals with independence. You just need to look at the fabulous road infrastructure in, in County Kerry and uh, remember the Finnafall arrangement with Jack Jackie Healy Ray. Uh, and uh, if uh, Mark McSharry is claiming that uh, he's got uh, something in return for his vote for his constituents, um, what does that mean locally here? Because I'm, I'm going to be speaking to Peter Fitzpatrick in a, a couple of minutes. Do you think I should be asking him, did he get something for the Louth County Hospital and, or something else for that matter? And if he didn't, why not? Yeah, did, did did he get some extra resources for a lady of lords? Would she be able then to accommodate whatever uh, overflow there is if, if the Navin services close, or, or did did he manage to secure uh, the ongoing support of Navin? Yeah, like it, it is a question that's worth asking. There was one TD last night who abstained uh, in the vote. The only one who did so uh, is Matt Shanahan from Waterford, who, who got elected almost specifically as a single-issue candidate to try and finally sort out cardiac services down there. Now, he said in a statement last night that he didn't specifically ask for anything from the government, which was, you know, sort of caught the eye of some of my, my Waterford-based colleagues who saw that statement are going, well, why did you not bother asking? Surely this is the time that you extract some commitment from the government. I mean, uh, Cahill Berry, the, the Kildare TD, or the Kildare South TD, former member of the um, the uh, Defence Forces Army Rangers uh, medical doctor um, he was very explicit in saying that he was only going to vote in favour of the government as long as they went through with the commitments announced yesterday to radically increase defence spending because the Defence Forces are not fit for purpose he considers himself basically to be a single issue candidate and he wanted that fixed uh, so I mean people sometimes 
nearer this idea of clientelism where TDs, you know, exact the price from from the government for getting their support on the day. But maybe that's the whole point that people elect independent TVs. They want them to be pawnbrokers. They want them to be make weights. They want them to win resources for the constituency. And it is worth asking maybe why why some TDs appear to have, uh, or at least, yeah, and appear is the important word, appear to have presented some sort of victory or some sort of quid pro quo for their support, uh, whereas others either didn't ask or don't appear to have come away with, with anything in their pockets. OK, but uh, I take it that going into recess, uh, the summer holidays, uh, that the, the government will be well pleased with itself and with the message that this is sending out to people that it is a, a stable government that had such a, a comfortable win over no confidence motion or confidence motion as the case may be. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, and it's good for internal morale as well, because one thing that it does clarify, and it's a, a trap that, that some of us in the media and anywhere else can fall into as well, sometimes we think of the doll as being split into merely government and opposition, and that they are two sides of almost equal size, and that they effectively then sort of play one off the other, but that they both think uniformly. And what last night proved is that although all of the political parties in opposition uh, all voted uniformly against the government, that there are an awful lot of independents in the doll who sometimes we forget about it being a very significant force. There are almost 20 of them, and they were split pretty much down the middle. We had eight or nine of them voting in favour of the government last night and about uh, up to a dozen voting against. Had uh, th- those eight or nine that did support the government gone the other way, then maybe it would have been a very different kettle of fish. But what it really does underline is that um, you know, it's not it's not so much important that the government is a minority so much as the fact that the opposition doesn't always vote uniformly either. And you need to find something pretty contentious to get every single member of the opposition behind one camp. And if they were to do that, then maybe things could be in danger. But certainly it's not before the budget that we're going to be thinking about anything of that sort. All right, we'll leave there. Gavin, thank you very much indeed. Uh, that's Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and a columnist with The Mead Chronicle. Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's speak uh, to independent TD for Louth and East Mead, Peter Fitzpatrick. Uh, good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. We heard you say in, in the doll that your constituents don't trust Sinn Féin to fulfil their promises if they were in government. That was one reason why you didn't want a, a general election. Another reason you said was that you wanted a, a budget in, in September and you decided to, to vote with the government. But you did have many concerns concerns at the same time. Michael, uh, as I said to you, Michael, I'm an independent TD, Michael. Uh, if you remember, Michael, when I got elected again there in 2020, you had me in your programme. And the question you asked me, was I going to support the government? And my answer to you was, I, we need in the country a strong and stable government, and I will go vote by vote. And as we all know, Michael, what happened then in 2020, we had a, a pandemic. Uh, uh, like for the last two years, the whole country has been really, really struggling. And in, and in fairness, Ireland was one of the most successful uh, COVID vaccination programs in the world. And in fairness too, Michael, is, like, the government stepped in. They, they spent over £48 billion, which helped the economy and society. And Michael, I'm telling you, the whole, all the parties, Sinn Féin, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, everybody worked together for the goodness of the country. And well, I'm, I'm just really very disappointed that Mary Lou MacDonald made a statement there that she wanted all independents to stand up and be counted. And as far as I'm concerned, is, uh, there's no one going to stop bullying me. Uh, 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 I know you're going to ask me a question. Uh, did, did, did they get any problems with this from the government to vote? Michael, I am knocking the door down to the government on a weekly basis. My constituents are coming to me. I be talking to ministers. I be talking to Taoiseach, the Tornish. I talk to everybody, Michael. Mm. At the end of the day, I've been elected by the people of Loud and East Mead, and I am going to do my best. And as I said, yeah, my constituents have come in to me, and they've raised concerns. Also, local businesses have raised concerns. 
coming from a border county, we know more than most people what the, 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 the position at the moment is. And uh, like, like, everything's not perfect, and there's no way I was going to make a speech there yesterday and, 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 and come across as being a member of the government. I'm not. They've, they've, they've done good things mm. and they've done bad things. But the situation at the moment is uh, the country is, is, is in a pretty good position at the moment financially, and I, I, am, I will put as much pressure as I can to, to the government to help the, the, you know, the, the situation with the cost of living, the health, housing, and everything else. And I think I'm better off being there knocking the door and banging the door and trying to do my best, for it, not only for the people of Loud and East Mead, for the whole country. And did you achieve anything? Did you negotiate anything with the government? Or did you just get anything in return for your vote? Well, Michael, you look at it, Michael. Uh, uh, you look at the, you look at the Loud County House at the moment, Michael. Uh, I know it's an MRU House now at the moment. It's, it's going excellent. You look at the Lewis Hospital at the moment, it's one of the most busiest and efficient hospitals in the country at the moment. Like, Michael, look at the amount of jobs we got in the county. As I said to you, instead of me knocking, waiting, 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 for, waiting for the government to come asking my vote, I've been working with the government for the last two years, representing the people in the area, and, uh, and it's a constant. Now, the government has come to me in numerous occasions over the last number of months and asked me to vote for them, and I refused to vote for them, because I thought some of the situations they were asking. Now, I did support, I did support uh, Sinn Féin for an emergency budget. Like, it's not all one-sided, but the situation was at the moment is uh, we didn't get it. All, all of a sudden, next thing, the Sinn Féin asked for a general election. Mm. Like, to me, to me, did did no you get anything in return for your vote? Is the Louth County to be upgraded to a Model 3 hospital? Michael, I told you, Michael, and if you please listen to me, Michael, is I don't talk uh, once or twice a year to the government. I talk on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. So instead, instead of me giving a wish list, I've been working with them. And it, 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 look, 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 I said, look in the area. Look, look what's happening there at the moment is I don't get everything. I don't show Did you get any commitment, plan. though? Michael, I, I've got commitments over the last two years, Michael, with the government, yes. Well, can you tell us what they are? Michael, this is look, Michael. Uh, look at the services in the Lloyd Hospital. Look at the services in the Lloyd Hospital. Look at the amount of jobs come to the area and everything else. It, 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 it's constant knocking the door. I have businesses coming in, in, into my office looking for help and, and, and looking for grants. Uh, Michael, I can knock any minister's door. I can knock the teacher's door. I can knock the tunnel's okay, door. Okay, but Mark McSharry is to get improved cardiac services in Sligo. Uh, there was no deal like that between you and the government. Michael, listen, what Mark Sherry done was Mark Sherry done. But as I said, I come from a business background. I have built a relationship up with this government over the last two years. As I said, I can hit the phone, I can talk to the Taoiseach, I can talk to the Taoiseach, I can talk to the ministers, I can talk to anybody at the moment. Have, have, you, have you spoken to the Minister for Health about the situation in the Lourdes Hospital and how the doctors there are very concerned at patients coming into Drogheda from Navan if they close the emergency department in Navan? Michael, I, Michael, I, I raised, if you look at my speeches in the Dáil. In the Dáil, I know that, yeah. But you said yeah, you can call the ministers any time. I'm just wondering, because uh, Gavin Riley uh, of Virgin Media News uh, was wondering if maybe you struck a, a deal with the government in relation to the Lord's Hospital about Navin. Michael, as I said to you, for the last two years, as an independent TD, I've been in constant contact. I spoke to the minister many of the time over the situation with the Lord's Hospital in Dáil and also the Loud County Hospital. And in fairness, Michael, if you have a look at the moment, it's the services in both hospitals are very, very high. The situation in, in, in the Navin Hospital, like, there's one thing, like, it's a very serious situation. It's similar to what happened maybe in Lloyd back there in 2010. And uh, the only thing at the moment, Michael, is I said, uh, Jerry McIntyre was in our programme there at the moment, is, and I consider Jerry McIntyre to be an, an excellent doctor. He has raised his concerns with the Minister. I just can't understand why they're letting it drag on and drag on so long at the moment. Is. 
if, if, if people if people lives are in danger, either what they do is they invest the money in, into the into the into the hospital in Avon, which which I would agree with. Or what they do is they they, they improve the services and draw that. I, I, it's a no-brainer to me. I can't understand. And I, 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 I personally, let's call a spade a spade. It seems to be a, a political decision that, that it, it, it's a stalemate. Mm. But people's li- people's lives are in danger. It's very important that we do listen to the likes of Jerry McAtee. And I think I think the minister. And I, I did I did call the minister on numerous occasions like, that that he's very slow in reacting to this situation. And I just think that there's people in the media in the media area they deserve a lot more and it's just not happened and it okay. will be Michael it's okay Michael it's okay me saying oh mm. I spoke to the minister this. I, it's always better off putting in a record of the all and, and, and forcing an answer on the decision from the minister in that occasion Okay, uh, and uh, the Dáil record does show that you raised uh, concerns uh, about uh, the closure of uh, the emergency department in Navan and uh, what impact that will have on the hospital in Drogheda. I want to talk to you about the hospital in Drogheda for a completely separate reason, if I can, uh, because the Irish Examiner is reporting today that an internal audit investigation by the HSE, uh, which the examiner has seen, has found that multiple hospitals across the country have retained organs from post-mortem examinations for more than one year specified in the HSE's own policies. The paper also says that the Children's Hospital in Crumlin retained organs from 24 post-mortem examinations for more than 12 months with the oldest dating from the year 2000. Further on in the article we read that the mortuary transfer practice at Our Ladies Hospital in Navan was highlighted as involving an outdoor element, 300 metres in length on trolleys not designed for outdoor transportation. This probe, this audit, also recommended that the HSE's post-mortem policy be updated and that it be determined whether open disclosure is necessary for instances of organ incineration at University Hospital in Limerick and Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda as well as Conley Hospital. The audit found that inappropriate organ disposal was still in use in Limerick and at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda, where the incineration of organs continued between 2018 and 2021. That was the period under review, but they were still incinerating organs in the Lourdes Hospital uh, just last year. And both Limerick and the Lourdes were informed of an immediate need for them to implement a change in their sensitive disposal policy while poor record-keeping in terms of post-mortems were noted. It's quite shocking stuff, isn't it, Peter Fitzpatrick? Michael, it's absolutely ridiculous what's happening there at the moment. Is uh, I read I read the, uh, the report this morning in the Irish Examiner. I also looked at prime time there last night, and and when you see the headlines in the, in, in the national newspaper, inappropriate organ disposal, it's an absolute disgrace. I seen a family from Cork there last night who had twins, and uh, one of the one of the one of the children uh, died, and uh, they, they agreed to have a post mortem, and the only reason they agreed to have a post mortem was they wanted to understand the death, the death of the child. And they were asked that they want all the organs back, and they said they wanted them all back. And then all of a sudden, the brain, they never got the brain back, and it was incinerated. Mm. To me, that's an absolute disgrace, Michael. Now, the, the really thing that really does annoy me there at the moment is, Michael, in, in the article, if you look at the Irish Examiner, it says that 98% of post-mortems taking place in Ireland being being ordered by the coroner's office. And the relationship between the HSE and the coroner's office is not defined or documented. That is an mm. absolute disgrace. Documented. Like, you know, they, 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 like, like, it's okay, I, I can call you a program this morning mm. and I can say, oh, I'm going to contact the minister. It's, it's the family's, I, 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 really, like, I, I couldn't imagine myself in that situation there. Is, 
And like, for example, there was back between 2018 and 2021, uh, three adults and a child got a post-mortem there. And like, the word you said there at the moment is there. Did the contact the family? What do you say? Open disclosure is needed to to, mm. to contact the family. Michael, that is an absolute and utter disgrace, Michael. Mm. It's something that has to be. And I, I, think, I think so. They were incinerating organs without telling people. Uh, did anybody know? I wonder. Before this morning, uh, that organs were being incinerated after post mortems in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital up to last year. And did any of us know that the mortuary transfer practice at Our Ladies in Navan? Uh, was highlighted as involving an outdoor element 300 metres in length on trolleys, not designed for outdoor transportation. It's very disturbing. Michael, as I said to you, like, uh, like, uh, lo- losing a loved one and then losing a loved one and being asked then to, to, to give permission for post-mortem and then discovering then that, 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 that you don't get all the parts of, of the person's body back, to me, it's totally and utterly wrong. The system has failed, the HSE has failed, I can't understand where the coroner's office hasn't got all this all this information documented, but there must be documentation somewhere when this is all coming out. Mm. I, I don't know how, I don't know how this this came out, but I I, I think I think the it's H- a HSC H- audit, yeah, yeah, it's an internal yeah. audit, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. and Michael, I believe I believe Michael that it's a very comprehensive uh, uh, report. There's mm. 21 pages. There's six red, uh, red 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 flags at the moment. Michael, this is something that has to be raised. This is something that has to be sorted ASAP. Mm. And listen, it's not fair on the families. Okay. And I'm sure a lot of families, yeah. loved ones, have has, has lost in the last number of years and they had post margins. Now they'll send it themselves as part of my yeah. daddy, me, mammy. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm very aware that there's people listening to us uh, this morning who, yeah. who, who may be feeling just that way, exactly. Yeah. Peter, I have to leave it there. I'm out of time. Thank you indeed for your time and for joining us on the programme as always. Independent TD, Flaud and East Meath, Peter Fitzpatrick. Michael Reed on LMFM. Sinn Féin got it wrong. That's Jim's opinion. Jim is in Dundalk and he was on the phone to us uh, this morning to say he thinks Sinn Féin got it wrong because he doesn't think there's an appetite for a general election. People are too worried about the cost of living and trying just to get from day to day to survive. We don't need more instability, Jim in Dundalk says, and thanks for your call as well. Jim, thanks to Tony for calling us. Tony says the wheels have come off Sinn Féin, in my opinion. They thought they had the government on the ropes, but what they have proved is that they have no policies for the way forward. I think this motion was a rush of blood to the head of Mary Lou MacDonald. I'm surprised you are not talking about the Sinn Féin policies or lack of them, says Tony. Thank you as well, Tony, for your call to the programme today. Martin is in Dundalk, and Martin says, Peter Fitzpatrick has been on your show in the past, giving out about the government, but yet he's supporting them. You can't have it both ways. Thank you indeed, uh, Martin, uh, for your call. I suppose in Peter Fitzpatrick's defence, he did say he voted with the Sinn Féin motion for uh, an emergency budget and then voted with the government this time around. And if that's having it both ways, I I think Peter Fitzpatrick would be pretty comfortable with that. Uh, Typical politician, though, says John Indrahada. They don't seem to be able to answer a question uh, straightforwardly. Thank you indeed, uh, John, for that. A a few people like that, uh, not uh, convinced that the government won the day, or at least not outright. Derek Andrada says, it's all very one-sided on the radio this morning, Michael. 66 TDs have no confidence in this government and it's clear independents have been bribed with promises to vote for them. Uh, Please tell both sides of the story. And he says it's pretty clear to him that 
Peter Fitzpatrick had something promised to him before he voted with the government. He, he wouldn't answer the question. Why aren't you pushing him on it? I hope the voters are listening in today. Uh, has <laughs> He's made it clear to Derek uh, what made him vote in favour of the government. Thank you indeed, Derek. We let other people make up their own minds. And of course, like Derek, you're welcome to contact us if you have something to say today as well. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. May of 2018, the Irish people voted overwhelmingly to repeal uh, the Eighth Amendment and the Termination of Pregnancy Act was introduced in December of that year in line with the, with the um, amendment and also in line with the debate. And I think that's, it's important to, to, to make that point. And it was an all-party Oireachtas committee uh, that worked through the complexities of the legislation. There was a requirement in that act uh, to uh, ensure a wide-ranging review, uh, examining the effectiveness of the operation of the, of the Act. And that is underway. And the study, and Marie O'Shea Biel has been appointed as the independent chair of the review. The Unplanned Pregnancy and Abortion Care Study, conducted by Trinity College Dublin, is part of that review provided for in the legislation. Uh, that part of the review is carried out by, as you say, Dr. C- Catherine Conlon, and seeking to, gen- to generate an in-depth understanding of the experiences of women who have accessed abortion care services since the commencement of the Act. Uh, and the, uh, so it will be part and parcel um, of, of the review. The, 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 it will be fed into the review, of course, um, and uh, it's expected um, to have the entire review completed by the end of the year. All right, that's uh, the Taoiseach, Michal Martin, speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday. And let's hear more uh, about uh, that study, the UNPAC study, or the Unplanned Pregnancy and Abortion Care Study, which was carried out uh, by Dr Catherine Connolly in Trinity College. Uh, Lana Ryan is Women's Health Coordinator with the National Women's Council of Ireland. A very good morning to you, Alana, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. The National Women's Council wants uh, the legislation to be liberalised and uh, there to be easier access to abortion services in this country. As we heard the Taoiseach say, their Dr. Collins' report is going to feed into the review of services and given what this review says uh, you'd have to assume that that is exactly what is going to happen, that services will be liberalised it will be easier to access uh, abortion services. Um, Thank you. So I think that the key thing here is around evidence-led legislative reform. And what Catherine's report yesterday showed was that for significant groups of women, the current legal framework is not fit for purpose. And that is particularly the group of women who have um, experienced a, a significant fatal fetal anomaly. And that's devastating news. It's really difficult and heartbreaking to hear that during your pregnancy. But what adds um, additional stress and trauma to it is the fact that only a small portion of those who receive that diagnosis are able to access care in Ireland because the way our legal framework is set up is that uh, two clinicians have to be absolutely certain that the fetus will not survive more than 28 days. And these cases are rarely black and white. And it's very hard for clinicians to say with that level of certainty 
that um, you know the baby will only survive within the 28 days. It could be a little bit longer. It could be a matter of months. But the reality is that these women have these terrible diagnoses and then are being told that there isn't the available care in Ireland for them because of the legal framework and because as doctors, if they step outside the legal framework, they will face criminal prosecution. So you understand the doctors are being very conservative and cautious, which is is understandable, but it does mean that these women are still travelling. Yeah, because as you say, though, we really need legal changes. Okay, in fairness though, uh, and uh, Uh, I think uh, the pro-life campaign would make uh, the argument that uh, it is impossible for doctors to say that uh, the foetus wouldn't survive uh, longer than 28 days. As you said, uh, the foetus could last months, could live for months, uh, but could live for years and could live for many years in some cases as well. Well, I mean, we're talking about fatal fetal anomalies here. So, uh, you know, the diagnosis is this... um, you know, the, the life quality and the life expectancy is very short. Well, you know, that's that's the matter of but it. But it can be many years. I mean, it could be it could be the case that the child lives for a short period of time, but that quality of life is so um, debilitating and so uh, traumatic for the child mm. and causes such great pain and such significant burden um, to them that the parents feel that it is uh, the child's best interest that the that the life is um, is not put through that stress mm. and that trouble, and that's why uh, they would like to see. And I think this is what mm. came through from the report: mm. access to care at home, so that they can grieve and be supported by their their mm. circles around them. And, mm. uh, you know, and the I understand that uh, they and can't do that. Uh, and we're we're, we're talking about very debilitating uh, conditions, uh, and uh, quite often. Uh, the child will be born, uh, it'll be a stillbirth or or, uh, will die not long after birth. But some of these children can live for many years, 10, 15, 20 years and more. No, I think we're we're not talking about the same thing here because ultimately we're talking about two clinicians who have to um, actually certify that the life expectancy will be so short. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day. 
But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. It will be within 20 I know, but based on the condition. And, but, I mean, the, the findings of the report are that some clinicians have different opinions around the extent of the, the life, you know. So, you know, they're, they're all agreeing that the life will be very short and very impaired. But what they can't agree on is whether the 28 days is being met. And the reality is that um, these these cases are very complex. Um, but as a, as a matter of fact, they are short and they are debilitating and they cause huge pain and stress. Um, not only to the to the to the baby for those initial uh, months, but to the parents as well. And the compassionate uh, yeah. approach here is to recognise the huge stress that this is causing. Yeah. And well, if you take something like Edward syndrome, uh, around one in five will live lo- longer than a, a week. Um, some will live up to five years, about twelve percent. But some uh, children will live for years. I mean, I think that this comes back to respecting the decisions. Well, of I, the no, no, and that's a different thing. And no, you, also I, the no, clinician's no. expertise Hold and on a second. ability. Uh, Alana, no, 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 because you, you told me that it was a matter of fact that they only live for a matter of days. That's wrong. Um, no, what I said was it was a matter of fact that it's difficult to determine whether or not yes, um, that's a difference. can survive that's a within 28 thing. days, that's what a I said. That's a different thing. Uh, and that's uh, and it is a matter of choice. Uh, and if you are uh, pregnant and um, you're, you're you're given this diagnosis, uh, it's a very big p- decision for people to take, uh, and it's a very big decision for the doctors to take. Uh, and the law says that uh, unless they can determine between them uh, that the child won't live for more than twenty eight days, uh, well then uh, uh, an abortion wouldn't be permissible, which is where the problem lies, uh, because it is impossible because some of these children will live for years for doctors to come to that determination. I think what's, what's causing um, the huge challenge to doctors is working within the criminal framework. You know, uh, ultimately, because abortion is still part of um, our criminal law, if you provide care outside the very narrow circumstances of the Act, you can face prosecution and a jail sentence of up to 14 years. Mm. So this really ties doctors' hands. You know, as clinicians, they want to be able to advise their patients based on uh, as much clinical evidence and knowledge they have of different conditions and, you know, the life expectancies and the quality of life uh, associated with that. And that for that to be a shared decision with the, the family or, or the mother involved. But ultimately, because we have this very restrictive definition in our law, mm. and this is combined with the criminal framework, it means that they can't provide the care to patients, which they want to do yeah. in many circumstances. Uh, and, and, I think many, and many of the women will proceed anyway. It's just that the service isn't available to them here and they will travel overseas where services are available. 
I mean, some some will be able to do that. Yes, absolutely. But travel is very difficult, and it comes, you know, at a, at a huge financial, logistical, um, and resource challenge for many. So, you know, some women will be able to to take that route. Others won't. And I just think that is a huge. Um, a huge inequality and, and a huge um, rejection of the spirit of repeal, which was that no woman should be uh, forced to travel for health care that she should receive at home. But in practice, what we're seeing is that some women are able to um, and, and, and go through the stress and trauma that travel entails, mm. go to England for these terminations or other countries, but uh, others just can't get that care at home. And that's that's really terrible, I mm. think. If it was available to them, uh, they still, uh, or if it was permissible by law, if the law was changed uh, in respect of that, it may still be impossible because uh, it can be difficult to access services. Uh, and uh, in line with uh, this report, uh, this unpacked study from Trinity College uh, this week, uh, the Minister has said he's going to introduce legislation which will put an end to protests outside of healthcare facilities that provide uh, abortion services. Uh, And that may bring about a change in thinking, in particular with GPs, I take it. Yeah, I mean, so we're talking about the safe access zones around healthcare facilities, which is um, something at the National Women's Council we've been calling for for a long time. This is because we know that um, GPs are reluctant to provide if their um, uh, you know, surgeries are being targeted by anti-choice activities. And this is uh, you know, harassment of staff as well as uh, service users in the community as a whole. And it can be really uh, upsetting and distressing for service users to be walking by uh, you know, kind of uh, little white coffins and uh, you know photos of of, uh, of of you know terrible images. And I think that this uh, legislation is really crucial not only to ensure that there's dignity and respect for all those who are accessing healthcare, but also to ensure that GPs and hospitals know that in providing the service, they are protected and their staff are protected, mm. um, and and can come on board with the assurance that those, um, you know, safe access zones are in place. Okay, and GPs like the ones in Cork, Donegal, Dublin, Galway, Kildare, Limerick, Roscommon, Tipperary, Waterford and Wicklow won't have to face protesters or patients uh, going with sore throats or whatever their ailment is, uh, have to face protesters on their way in to see their doctor. Uh, That's uh, according to a study from NUI Maynooth which says that in 10 counties there have been protests outside of GPs' offices. But how how will this work? there's been this constitutional question uh, about uh, banning protests uh, within 100 metres of a healthcare facility because if you do that can protests take place anywhere because there's always going to be a, a GP's office or a healthcare facility of some sort w- within 100 metres of where you're going to stage the protest and it may not be about abortion. I mean, the point here is really recognising that certain sites in our community are um vital for people's health and well-being and that they should be able to access care in a way which respects their rights and um, upholds their dignity. Mm. And that's what the safe access zones are about. Ultimately, 
people can continue to protest and and hold demonstrations anywhere they like, but not within the the short uh, radius around the healthcare facility. And this is because we know that the anti-choice demonstrations have a really significant Mm. toll, not only on service users, but on staff as well. And in in one case we know about, a GP was actually forced to shut their Saturday morning surgery because of the anti-choice protests um, going on outside. Okay, but let's say you want to stage a protest. terrible for the whole, you know, population of service users. Everyone needs a Saturday morning surgery. As I said, if you're going in with a sore throat or whatever, but let's say you want to stage a protest over the cost of electricity. Uh, and you're told it has to be 100 metres away from Our, Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital. So you move 100 metres up the road and you couldn't be within 100 metres of a, a GP's office. I mean, you can't single out a, a abortion in terms of the right to assembly, can you? Which uh, we all have a, a right to under the Constitution. Absolutely. Um, but I, I don't think that that will be an issue. You know, I think what we're talking about here is a small space for protection of staff and service users around healthcare facilities. Mm. You know, I, I really feel that demonstrations around the cost of living or or any other um, issue can take place um at any point uh, around the country except for within the small radius around the healthcare facilities and many it, of these demonstrations take place outside the door which which is the appropriate mm. place for them uh, if we're if we're looking to to call on government for much needed changes yeah i wouldn't be surprised though if there's a gp's office or something within 100 meters of the door I mean, ultimately, we we are still at the stage where the government's um, proposed legislation is 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 just being worked up, and mm. we're going to be going into pre-legislative scrutiny mm-hmm. uh, with the health committee. So, yeah. if there are challenges around, we, we may be going into post. <coughs> I, I, I'm I understand. Sure that those yeah. will be addressed. Oh well, they're they're the questions. I think at least they seem to have been the questions that have stalled the implementation of this, because I think people would have expected legislation. Uh, to this effect in 2019 or certainly in 2020 uh, and uh, it may be a case of post-legislative scrutiny that will be uh, given to this by the Supreme Court ultimately. Well, I think the fact that um, it's a government-sponsored bill this time makes a big difference because that means that they have been able to use legal advice from within the department, um, the Department of Health, and configure the bill in such a way that they think it will pass through um, you know, the various stages of the Dole and the Shannon and get through with the AG's approval. So, you know, pri- prior to this, we were talking about a cross-party bill, which was developed um, by opposition parties with the support of civil society. And, you know, th- that bill was strengthened at each mm. stage and, and was made more robust and took into account, yeah. you know, the, the balancing of rights between the right to demonstrate and mm. the right to... I know, but so, so, Simon Harris uh, and uh, Stephen Donnelly uh, have pledged to introduce it uh, and we're still waiting now. Stephen Donnelly says it, it is forthcoming. Time will tell whether it's workable or if it's constitutional, uh, but it is obviously a, a very complicated thing uh, and uh, we'll await the outcome and hope that uh, it, it is something that can give people protection about uh, conducting their daily business. Alana, I have to leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme. Alana Ryan is the Women's Health Coordinator with the National Women's Council of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Children's Rights Alliance, as you've been hearing in the bulletins today, is launching the first child poverty monitor. 
Let's uh, speak uh, to the CEO of uh, the Children's Rights Alliance, Tanya Ward. A very good morning to you, Tanya, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Tell us uh, what's involved in this monitor, um, what what you're looking at and uh, what you're hoping from it. Look, we've launched this annual child poverty monitor to put a spotlight on the experience of children and young people living in this country uh, who experience poverty every day. I suppose, you know, we're deeply concerned with the fact that there are 62,000 children now living in Ireland in the deepest form of poverty. Those children are going to bed hungry maybe several times a week. You know, they don't have a new pair of runners or new clothes when school starts in September. Um, and their parents are living with enormous stress, trying to pay the bills, trying to keep their jobs, trying to keep their heads above water. And we know when we speak to these children who are experiencing us, they, they talk, they're very aware of what their families are going through, even very young children will understand what they're going through. Um, we've heard of situations uh, like Bernardo's have reported situations where children have, you know, not taken food from their early years programme and brought it home to try and feed mm. their siblings. And I suppose one of the things that disturbs me most about children living through poverty is, you know, it does have an enormous effect on their well-being and how they think about themselves. So they've done studies um, where uh, nine-year-olds um, at that age, uh, they found that uh, three in ten um, who live in very serious poverty have a very poor view of themselves. They have low self-esteem mm, mm, and mm. about what's possible for them in the yeah. future. Mm. And you know that means these children living with that weight, living with the toll of poverty, they'll never reach their full potential. Okay, I was reading your statement uh, and found it. Uh, interesting to say that the Hot Schools Meals Programme should be extended nationally, but uh, disturbed to, to read you talking about an issue of holiday hunger so that uh, children are hungry when they're not in school. That's right. I mean, one of the, I suppose, one of the uh, things you could say about Ireland, it's a bit of an outlier actually when it comes to uh, hot school meals because it's actually part of the school day in most European countries. And, and the truth is, poor outcomes and poverty isn't inevitable and it, you can actually address it. And hot school meals is one of the big ways you can you, you can address um, hunger. Um, it, it's hugely popular where the government has invested in us. We've had great reports back from principals and teachers and from the children themselves. They're, they're just better able to, um, to take part in school. Um, they might be getting vegetables <laughs> the only time of the day. It helps the families because they know their child is getting a meal. Um, and I suppose one of the things that's really come true is how popular it is with all children. Um, you know, in other countries, what you don't want, you don't want to stigmatise a child on low income. You want to make sure every child gets to benefit from it. And the data is telling us from Europe, every child gets to benefit it when you do introduce it. But the children who are on the lowest incomes uh, benefit most. But you're right, holiday hunger is an enormous issue because some children will tell us the only hot meal they might get in a day is in school because their parents are, are really struggling or they might be living in a household where they're being neglected. Mm. And there's a huge gap over the summer months for a lot of children when you don't have summer programmes and you don't have um, uh, food programmes. Uh, and and it's, it's not very expensive to, 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 to invest in holiday hunger. It absolutely should be something the government is thinking about. OK, um, well, we take that 
as a, a, an example. Uh, h- how will that feature in the monitor? Tell me a little bit uh, about the report that you're publishing today uh, and how you'll be monitoring the experiences of children living in this country. Yeah, look, the, the monitor is covering all the key things that make an enormous difference to a child's life, um, education, early years education, food, housing. And the other bit, I suppose, that often gets neglected is play and recreation um, and creating cities and communities for children and young people. Um, you know, children actually learn through play. They, play. they learn by having safe places to go. Uh, to hang out with their friends and it's one of the big issues in Ireland is that we actually don't have a national play strategy or any national policies in place that make sure that councils develop uh, places for children to play and hang out and young people to hang out and it's something that's integral to how they think about themselves and how they feel about themselves. I mean it has huge improvements on mental health when you're able to create um, places for kids to hang out and one of the things we wanted to do with the monitor was also spotlight great examples throughout Ireland where poverty is being addressed. So on the play piece in Dublin Nation, in a place called Oliver Bond, the local community came together um, and over a 13-year campaign um, worked to convince the councils, uh, the council and government to invest and create a local playground and um, wildlife and, and wildflowers. And that has had an enormous effect. It launched in, in May mm. and it's had an enormous effect um, on the community and on the psyche of the community as well. We'd love to see that happen across the country. We've also spotlighted um, amazing work that's happening in Tallow, for example. Mm. The local groups in Tallow went off and did a research project analysing the impact on poverty of ch- on children. And now they want to come together and create a local uh, plan. And we're hoping that government will back that plan and put resources into it to give the children and young people in Tallow the chance to um, have, have, have a childhood just like everyone else. And that's something we hope happens throughout the country because the reality is when it comes to poverty it happens Mm. everywhere half of all children experiencing poverty are in urban centres but they're also in rural Ireland as well Uh, and Oliver Bond has always uh been a, a place where you'll meet great people, but also one where there's lots of uh, deprivation, as is pockets of uh, Tala, as are parts of Drogheda and Dundalk and Navin and places like that. And uh, I, I think it's probably no surprise that when you don't put in uh, play ways of playing um, or, or uh, some of uh, these things that you spoke about, the floral displays uh, and so on in Oliver Bond, uh, that you end up with other problems uh, and uh, you'll see disadvantage areas across uh, the towns of this region as in Oliver Bond or in Tala where you end up with drugs problems. Uh, we had a very serious drugs problem in this part of the world uh, and there was a lot of talk about uh, intervening when uh, children are, are too young to take the wrong path uh, and put them on the right path, uh, although uh, I'm not sure whatever happened uh, after the Vivian Guerin report and all of the recommendations and the group that was set up. But perhaps uh, we'll hear about that in time, although a lot of time has passed in, in the interim. Uh, am I right in thinking, Tanya, that the Children's Rights Alliance is disappointed with our, our politicians? Um, you say in your statement that these issues are at, on the tip of everyone's tongues, uh, but you're asking, are they on the top of the minds of our political leaders and you also say that child poverty is not inevitable, it is the result of political choices. 
That's right. I suppose w- one of the things, of course, I, I don't think anyone across government um, wants to see children uh, living in poverty. But I think one of the challenges is we don't have enough people leading at the national level who actually have this as their full-time day job. So what I see are very busy, hard-pressed officials um, that have one alongside eight other things. And we've looked at other countries where they've gotten this right. So Scotland and New Zealand actually have a child poverty government unit where they have officials that are focusing on this day in, day out. They're launching national programmes and initiatives. They're doing research they're making sure that all anything that's being launched um, is, is poverty-proofed. We don't have that in Ireland. Um, it's something that's really missing. And we'd love to see the government really take the bull by the horns and set up a unit. Because yeah. it's the only way we're actually going to see transformation happening at the national um, and at the local level as well. Um, you know, poverty is not inevitable. And there's countless examples where you set up a good education program, you mm. set up a good f- a food poverty program, you actually turn the tide and you change the course of children's lives. Yeah, well, play is probably the most important part of any person's education. And um, we all start off uh, as uh, children. And I, I, I've heard it said before that a, a unit like the one you describe uh, should be all over any budget that a, a government announces and that every measure should be poverty-proofed and every action taken by every government government department should be poverty-proofed. That's right. And it's one of the things um, at the moment that actually doesn't happen uh, across the board, particularly from a child or a young person's um, perspective. And you see sometimes, you know, initiatives being launched that haven't adequately taken account of the situation uh, people on low incomes are in. So um, I think, for example, the National Childcare Scheme, which is a great initiative, you know, it is helping paying the cost of childcare. But one of the downsides of that is it actually doesn't cover the full cost of childcare if you happen to live in a part of the country where uh, childcare is more expensive. So parts of Dublin, parts of Cork, for example. And so if you're on a low income, you know, the chances of you being able to pay the extra the extra cost of childcare is pretty slim. So hmm. we, we think it shouldn't be based on, you know, your income. We should think if you think if you're on a very low income, the state should be really su- su- uh, subsidising the cost of childcare because in all the studies, it's telling us that, number one, if you want to make give children the best start in life, getting them into early years programmes is really critically important. But number two, what seems to have a huge bearing, more important even than in- income supplements, is if you give a mother a chance to get into the workplace um, and provide her with good quality childcare, that makes an enormous difference. Okay. And unfortunately, I just don't think we're there yet. No, I don't think we are, Tanya. Thank you, though, for joining us uh, this morning. Tanya Ward, Chief Executive with uh, the Children's Rights Alliance. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Children at Risk in Ireland charity, or CARI, is hoping to raise €100,000. Let's hear a little bit more about this. Colm O'Brien is uh, the general manager with CARI. And a very good morning to you, Colm. Thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. You have 254 children who are waiting on therapy services through CARI. It's going to take five years to get through that waiting list and this is because you just have 12 psychotherapists at the moment. You have the space, you have the capacity, you don't have enough psychotherapists and you could uh, see those children and give them the therapy uh, that they require in 
two years rather than the five years that it's going to take at present, I believe. And very good morning to you, Michael. Indeed, thank you for having us on the show this morning. Very, very much appreciated. Yeah, we're um, uh, the, the the situation here in Ireland. Let, let me, if I may, just explain to your listeners what Carry does. Carry is a charity founded in 1989. So we're in our 33rd year of operation. And it was founded because some medical professionals back in the day saw the need, the regrettable need to help children who found themselves uh, sexually abused and help the families, the non-offending carers in the lives of those children. So Carrie was born back then and has been attempting to help with this uh, heinous crime, this problem, um, malaise in our society ever since. And the reason we're out talking to people like your good self t- today and at, at this time is that, um, you know, in, in every organisation, you'll notice yourself, there are trends. You're able to basically predict one year to the next what's likely to happen. And within parameters, Carrie was sort of coping with the number of children that were coming to its services over the years until 2020. And in 2020, uh, our waiting list literally doubled in one year, in 12 months, on, on nobody could have foreseen it and yet it happened and, and, we and began in to, line with lockdowns of course absolutely yeah, and, and, yeah, that's, yeah. and that's the only thing that changed somebody else yeah. asked me well you know what, what was it the only thing we can point to is lockdown we were asked to stay at home to keep ourselves safe and you're seeing and children as young as three years of age apparently as young as three and the challenge as you mentioned earlier our waiting list at the moment because it doubled in lockdown has got grown to a five year waiting list unless we can attract more funds to hire more psychotherapists the way we work a family will make itself known to us and that in itself takes such bravery we applaud them um, but they'll make themselves known to us uh, they'll come in for an assessment and then uh, once they come into our service one psychotherapist will work with a child uh, or the, the child and another psychotherapist will work concurrently with the non-offending carers mm. so that when the family leaves and goes back to their regular life in between sessions they at least both sides if you like know how to cope and uh, you, to work with each other You've been highlighting uh, a, a, year. a disturbing I- I increase in the increased numbers uh, an increase in uh, the number of children that you're seeing who've been uh, abused by a, a brother or a sister well, yeah, there, there, are, there are two aspects to this. There's sibling abuse. Definitely, uh, we, we have noticed uh, an increase in the incidence of reported sibling, sibling abuse. But abuse, but peer-on-peer is equally as devastating. Uh, that's, you know, friends, uh, people known to each other, but not necessarily related to each other. And again, we're seeing this trend, which is very disturbing. So uh, our, our waiting list grew from just under 100 to almost two, to, to over 250. Uh, in the last uh, two years. So it grew by 160%, literally 115% in 2020 mm. alone. And uh, But in that, in those numbers, 44% of the cases that have been reported to us are uh, cases where there is peer-to-peer uh, and or um, sexually harmful behaviour being noticed in very young children. Mm. I, I take it. I take. I take it in the in, in the case of sibling abuse, it must rip the whole part family apart. Any any incidents of child sexual abuse it must do that, um, but it must be doubly challenging and doubly horrific if we're talking sibling abuse. Um, when Carrie starts to look and ask questions, well, what, what has changed? We're seeing. Uh, children staying at home because of lockdown uh, imposition, mm. which was the right thing for government to suggest us do to keep us safe from COVID. However, it would appear that uh, being locked at home 
uh, for some children was not the safest place to be, unfortunately. Mm. Um, on top of that, and you know this and I know it, our lives, all of our lives, which a lot of us carried online anyway, but we were forced online even more and it became a much more acceptable place to hang out, if you like. And so we're sensing, and this is anecdotal at this stage because it's early days, uh, but we're sensing that uh, children then had greater access to internet time, to screen mm. time, and therefore either sought out or in many cases stumbled across graphic imagery, which our sense is that uh, some children then began to act out inappropriately, not understanding what they were doing. Mm. There are all sorts of challenges. At what ages? Uh, well, we, we I mean, when you say they didn't, they didn't understand what they were doing, uh, at what ages uh, would you say well, that we, they're acting we, out like we, we see mm. children between the age of three and 18. Mm. Uh, so anybody under the 18 is, is, uh, is classed a child, as we know. I know. And but, uh, the but, challenge... challenge but at was, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, I mean, uh, there, there comes a point when they do know what they're doing. Does it, do well, well there, there comes a point when they're beginning to experiment, but mm. if that experimentation gets out of control and is inappropriate, it can lead to uh, abuse and it can lead to a criminal activity, uh, you know, in, in, in years to come. So uh, there uh, are all sorts of challenges that we need to address. As, as uh, uh, what stage is it a criminal activity? Uh, abuse of, of a minor is a criminal act. A criminal act. Mm. Um, so is, it, is a 10-year-old uh, abuser uh, guilty of a criminal act? Uh, I'm, I'm not a legislator, mm. so I can't answer that question mm. definitively. But, you know, if, if, we, if we look at the difference between uh, a perpetrator, an adult perpetrator mm. who clearly knows what he or she is doing, yeah. grooming a child for inappropriate sexual um, exploitation, that's, that's one thing. Mm. The challenge is if, if that's brought in and we're seeing an increase in the numbers of, of uh, children under the age of 18 beginning to experiment inappropriately. And, uh, and, and then for somebody, and one of the challenges that I've seen as I journey through mm. my journey with Carrie as general manager is uh, some of these children that come to us are so young, they don't know anything else. They think mm. that, isn't this just the way life is because this is the way life is in my home. It's mm. only in years to come that they realise that not every child in the class uh, yeah. was exposed to the same And do, do, do they realise later, uh, after counselling or later in life, uh, that what they did uh, was not normal? Uh, yeah, I believe so. I believe mm. so. And I think yeah. it, one of the challenges that we're, we're faced with, uh, going back to our five-year waiting list, if you take a child that might come to us next week at the age of three, unless we're successful in raising significant funds or hire more psychotherapists, that child could be mm. eight before they get seen. And of course, the, the, you know, uh, the, the damage gets compounded over those years where there's no early intervention mm. and robust intervention. In fact, up to 90% of children who've been abused that don't get proper intervention can develop mental illnesses by the age of 18. Okay. And of course, suicidal ideation, again, later in life, um, if in those cases mm. where there is an intervention and somebody is successfully stopped mm. in a suicidal attempt, uh, oftentimes the conversation leads back to early abuse. And I, I, take, it can, I, I take it it can have a, a psychological impact on the child who's abusing, the child who is uh, abused, and those who are related to them, particularly with sibling uh, abuse. Uh, uh, I was saying to you earlier on, it, it must rip the whole family apart uh, and yeah. if parents are, are uh, like most parents are doing everything they can to protect their children and shield them from harm it, it must be very very confusing when one of their children does such a, a terrible thing to another one of their children and how 
they decide to come to terms with that and love and cherish both of them. It's incredibly difficult. Uh, I can't even imagine it myself. Um, the challenge, however, if I may, uh, Michael, is that uh, uh, here in Ireland there were, there were 4,331 cases of child sexual abuse reported to, to Tusla in 2021 alone, right? That's 4,331 families who, uh, as to, to use your term, that their, their lives were ripped apart because of uh, um, uh, a disclosure of child sexual abuse, regardless of whether that was from outside the home or inside the home. Um, but here's the challenge, as Carrie sees it. How many families choose not to report for all sorts of reasons? Fear, shame, guilt? Disbelief. Whatever it might be. I'm sorry? Disbelief. Disbelief. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Any, any amount of reason. So our sense of it, unfortunately, is that the problem is, is growing. Uh, we're, we're curious here in Carrie to see, is the problem actually growing or... Is, is the silence being broken because silence is the enabler. Silence is what has allowed it to stay unreported, undetected, unspoken about for so many decades. Okay. And here in Kerry, our mission is to break the silence. If we can break the silence, Michael, we can break the cycle. Yep. Because oftentimes we see here in Kerry that abuse is intergenerational. Okay. Uh, you know, a, a, an abuser was in fact themselves abused, never never had it dealt with. And I, I think uh, a lot of people will hope uh, to be able to help you uh, in providing the services uh, that you do. Uh, you have uh, a shortage of funding, a significant €100,000 that you're hoping to raise in 100 days, you say as well, Colm. Uh, and I'm sure, uh, as I say, people listening to us this morning would be delighted to help if they can. Well, we'd be delighted, but also if somebody is uh, impacted by the conversation you and I are having, because it's not a difficult one. Uh, we have a care line, if I can give out the mm-hmm. number, please, if anybody yeah. Yeah. wishes to make a call, 0818-924-567, and I'll repeat that, 0818-924-567. Just if somebody's impacted by what they're hearing and would like uh, a steer, we'd, we're, we're very willing to, to listen and help. But if anybody is open to helping us raise some funds, we've got 12 therapy rooms. We could see 150 families a week mm. in our physical space that we've created. And we created that space specifically because we saw the increase coming down the track in 2020. Um, but currently we're only able to see about a third of that because we can't afford to hire enough psychotherapists. We are in robust conversation with government departments to raise funds there. Clearly they need to step up to the plate more too. Um, but we're asking the public and indeed companies uh, to get creative and see perhaps somebody could run something in a company. Um, 100 companies raising a €1,000 each and we can achieve our target. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment, Colin. Thank you indeed. And just to remind people listening, if you want to contact Carrie's care line, it's 0818 That's Colm O'Brien, who's the general manager with the Children at Risk in Ireland charity or Carrie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, we've been talking uh, about Budget uh, 23 for, it seems, forever at this stage. Uh, There'll be a lot of demands, undoubtedly, on government. And uh, this week, DOCUS met with the Overseas uh, Development Aid and Diaspora Minister, Colin Brophy, to call for an increase in funding to help with a humanitarian crisis uh, that is already underway in the Horn of Africa. Let's speak to Jane Ann McKenna, who's CEO of DOCUS. A very good morning to you, Jane Ann, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme.
programme this morning. Uh, there will be a lot of demands on government, undoubtedly, when it unveils what it is going to spend the €6.7 billion euro on, but you're hoping that some of it will go to aiding people overseas. Yes, uh, thanks, Michael, and thank you for having me on. I think that, uh, I think Indocus, we're the Irish network for the international um, development humanitarian organisations that are working overseas and indeed in the Horn of Africa at the moment. And I think we're, well, we're all well aware of the, the cost of living and the pressures, um, economic pressures here in Ireland. Um, but in this region in Africa, um, they're experiencing um, extreme levels of hunger at the moment. And this is very much unprecedented and uh, because there has been four, um, I suppose, dry rainy seasons, so four seasons uh, with no rain or four years with no rain. And so we're seeing kind of crisis level of hunger where we have, you know, uh, 23 million people at risk of white widespread famine. Um, we know that one person is likely dying every 48 seconds from hunger in the region. So we really want to highlight the fact um, to the Minister yesterday, and indeed we met with Minister Donoghue as well last week, to highlight the need for Ireland also to scale up its funding into the region and to avert any more needless deaths in the area from extreme hunger. Okay. Um, Ireland has long been lauded uh, for its commitment uh, to overseas uh, mm-hmm. development Indeed, uh, indeed uh, commitments that go back uh, to the days of the Bertie Ahern's Taoiseach. They do, you know, we have been, um, I think we've, we've all um, seen many Irish aid agencies working overseas for some years now and both that and through our partnership with Irish Aid, you know, there's huge efforts and resources have been put in um, to working in overseas development over the last 20 years or so. But we have seen that amount really stagnating, particularly over the last eight years, um, where, you know, we aren't, uh, we're, we're falling behind really other European countries as well in terms of our contribution um, as a percentage of gross national income mm. um, towards overseas development assistance. And I think this is, was a call really to the ministers and that we do need to get back on track. And I think the, the Horn of Africa crisis at the moment, where there is a risk of widespread famine, is an illustration you know why it is so important um, mm. that Ireland scales up its response in these areas. Okay, but it was Bertie Ahern, wasn't it? Uh, or correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that made that commitment to the United Nations at, mm. at uh, the beginning of the millennium. I, I think uh, that uh, the ODA investment would increase to 0.7 percent of gross national uh, products. Products, yes, mm. yeah, and we we're at a 0.32 percent at the moment, and that has, I suppose, that's remained consistent and stable for eight years and it's the same level uh, that it was 20 years ago so we're not really seeing any real progress in terms of trying to reach that target we know that um, you know it did scale up a little bit during the boom times in mm. 20, 2008 but you know that has been it was vastly cut as a result of the recession and then you know we haven't seen that um, that increase at all uh, come through and I think you know, so good, good, good intentions 20 years ago haven't mm. uh, been realised, uh, in other words. Uh, I think that's the point. Uh, and as you say, now we have uh, four years of no rain, people dying every 48 seconds. Uh, and then on top of that, you've got the problems that emanate uh, from uh, the invasion of Ukraine. 
Indeed, and I think you know, of course, there's a there's a risk of, um, and we see that there is already a shortage of food um, globally in terms of um, through the lack of exports from the Ukraine and Russia. But you know, the price that um, the World Food Programme, you know, who provides all the food aid, is paying for food is up 44 percent compared to 2019. So the actual cost of doing the same has a increase significantly um, so we do need to kind of match you know what we're able to um, to provide to be able to we need to actually increase to be able to maintain our level of support to many of the countries that Ireland is engaged with and mm. I think that it's really um, it's really critical that we look at some of the underlying issues you know of hunger conflict and climate that are having the long term implications on the Horn of Africa and elsewhere and really investing in sustainable yeah. solutions we know that Ireland, you know, you can see yourself, you know, within our role at the UN Security Council at an EU level, we are very strong in um, particular policy issues. And I think we just need to match that level of influence and strength with our funding as well. Uh, The world is mad. I I, I, I don't think there's uh, any questioning that people will be going on their holidays this week and there'll be in temperatures of over 40 degrees or higher. Uh, They're they're, they're, uh, experiencing severe flooding in Sydney. Uh, and no rain for four years in uh, the Horn of Africa uh, and uh, there's a long-term solution in all of that but uh, there's this short-term need at the same time, Jane Ann. There is indeed, there is indeed. And I think, you know, it's not it's not one necessarily over the other. Of course, there's a need for an urgent scale-up of humanitarian response into the region. But, you know, there are the sustainable solutions, you know, are there in terms of climate adaptation, in terms of kind of ensuring that there are kind of new practices that are introduced, you know, to ensure that we can actually have um, produced kind of food, that these areas can produce food next year and in future years as well, in light of the shifting and changing environmental, um, environmental conditions as a result of climate okay. change. Nice to talk to you, Jane Ann. Thank you for joining us on the programme uh, this no morning. Worries. Thank you. Thank you yeah. very much. Thank Jane you. Jane Ann McKenna is uh, the CEO of DOCUS. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now michael at lmfm.ie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.